0: Hi there and welcome back to Diversity Talks, a podcast collaboration between Bank of America and Linklater's, to discuss the latest trends in diversity, equity and inclusion in our organizations and beyond. My name is Alice Edie Ketchel, I'm an Associate General Counsel in the EMEA legal team at Bank of America and I'm delighted to lead you through our second episode of the three-part podcast series. In our last episode we spoke with Io and Victoria about the power of employee networks. Since we put that podcast out, over 100 of you have tuned in to listen. And hopefully that discussion inspired you to have further conversations of your own. Today, we're continuing to explore DEI in the workplace by talking through what it means to be anti-racist at work. In celebration of Black History Month in the US during February, our conversation is moving stateside I'm joined today by three colleagues and committed workplace champions for DE&I. I have with me Tina Green, an Associate General Counsel also in the legal team at Bank of America, based in Texas. I have Richard Smith, a partner at Linklater's, who's based in Washington, DC. And his colleague, Doug Davison, also a partner at Linklater's, also in DC. So welcome, Tina, Richard and Doug. And thank you for taking the time to be part of this conversation today. To start off, I think our listeners would be interested to hear your personal stories and why you're keen to be involved in this podcast. Why don't we start with Richard and then we'll move to Tina and then to Doug. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Alice. And thank you for the other participants, panelists on this podcast. They are outstanding. For me, this is core to my I've been practicing law now for 30 plus years, um, and it is very exciting to finally see the legal profession begin to embrace and deal with issues of diversity and inclusion. Uh, And I wanted to to give something back. So I'm a partner in the DR office. I'm the partner advocate for the Black Community Network here in the Americas for Linklaters. And for me, this provides an opportunity to look out for the next generation of lawyers coming through and ensure that they have a great experience. Because when I was coming along as a partner, there weren't many people that looked like me in the partnership. There weren't many African Americans associates in the firm. So now in today's world, I think it's a great opportunity for firms to be able to embrace this because it's great for business, but also allow you to partner with your clients uh, and, and ensure that the next generation can grow and flourish in the legal profession. Back to you, Alice.
0: Thank you. I, I love that phrase. You're looking out for the next generation of warriors. I think that's brilliant. Thanks so much for that. Tina, can we hear from you then?
2: Sure. Hi, Alice. Thank you so much for having me. i am um, been really looking forward to this conversation and, and uh, um, getting to know Richard and Doug, and I'm just excited to have this conversation with the two of you as well. Um, and I love that, you know, the next generation of warriors, um, and I think it's really sort of core, um, to my why, you know, why I'm so passionate about diversity and inclusion. And it's really, I started since law school. I think it was my 3rd year in law school, um, that I really became more focused on the retention Aspect and the development of our diverse talent. I recall getting a uh, winning a scholarship from a, a firm through a litigation skills program that we had, and they asked me, you know, well, what it, you know, we keep losing diverse talent. What it, what, it, what are we missing? And I said, well, give first, give them a job, and then develop them. You know, <laughs> if you want to keep diverse talent, this is what you need to do. Um, and, you know, that has been really core to my why, um, I'm so passionate about, um, diversity and the work that we do at Bank of America and the work that I've done, um, and just the importance of being, um, anti-racist in the workplace, um. Because it really is a fundamental part of being able to um, develop and grow in your careers. Um, and, you know, also very core to your mental or emotional well being, um, which I think is very important. Um, and so that's, that's really my why. That's why I'm passionate about it. And I've been that way. Um. You know, my, my whole career. Thank you, Tina. I, I think it's really interesting that when you, when you sort
0: of take a step back. And unpack some of these issues. Often, it's you know there's a really simple step you can take as the, as the first step in 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 making a change. And just what you're saying to you know an, an early employer, if you want to diversify your workforce, give diverse employees a chance, give them a job. It's so obvious, but but not always the first kind of port of call, right? Anyway, interesting, interesting thoughts. Thank you. So, Doug, let's hear from you.
3: Thanks Alice and uh, Tina and Richard. That's really interesting to hear about your stories and, um, you know, getting ready for this and getting ready for this question about you know why it was almost uh, it was a therapy session because I don't ask. You know, when do you think about why, why are you anti racist? Why am I a race champion? Why am I on the diversity committee? Why am I into inclusion and equality? And why am I proactively trying to. Take the next step after we offer that job, as you guys said, to invest in people to make sure they feel, you know, the love, part of the team, excited as I am about practicing law, which I've been doing now for almost 30 years, Richard. Um, boy, time flies. So, why? And, and I, I was reflecting, why am I so into equality? Why do I get so angry? You know, which motivates me to make sure people are doing okay at the firm and otherwise. It's because I I remember growing up uh, as a Jewish kid um, in a small town in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I remember playing basketball for the local Jewish community center. And I remember playing the non-Jewish teams. And what happened? They threw pennies at us, they called us names, they bullied us. And it wasn't just the kids, it was the parents. And I, I feel it now, just telling you guys a story, the anger, the embarrassment. And I think about that when I think about how important it is to treat people how I wanna be treated. And boy, is that simple, right? How we all wanna be treated. And that includes, as Richard said, paying it forward, creating opportunities, but really making it part of your DNA. So that's my story um, the, I always, when I studied the Holocaust, I mean, blacks and Jews were treated uh, especially by the Nazis who wanted a perfect race. And it's another reason that another thing that motivates me, right? All these things are still so important. And so I'm really happy to to talk about it with you guys and I hope I hope we'll be able to make continue to make progress. I know some days it's like one step forward, a couple steps back, but hopefully today we'll take some steps forward.
0: Absolutely. You want to treat people the way that you would like to be treated. And I think that's, that's the fundamental importance there. Thank you for that. So, so turning to, to our topic, what does it mean to be anti-racist at work? And, and why are we talking about being anti-racist as opposed to being not racist or to not being racist? And, and when I was, when I was thinking about this topic, I, I, I was reflecting on that there are, there are many ways, in an organization in a workplace to address not being racist that we've all seen and we've been part of um, uh, and to a certain extent they they can be um they can be positive tools in addressing institutional racism or systemic racism so i'm thinking about things like unconscious bias training um about reverse mentoring about statements from the top committed to um Supporting and celebrating ethnically diverse employees, to uh, supporting black-owned businesses, to substantial charitable donations, to commitments to diversifying recruitment policies um, or practices, and and retention policies and things like that. But but none of those tools or structures go towards changing the way that people think, and the way that certain people view society and so to me that is what the anti-racism that's where that comes in but 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 what are your what are your thoughts on on what's being how being anti-racist adds to and supports I guess the the overall kind of contention of not being racist in the workplace and Tina maybe we can start with you on that one
2: yeah no I I I agree with you completely. And it's, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot is, you know, we do a lot of great work, but like you said, until we change the way people think, um, there's only so much progress you're going to be able to make. Um, And so I think of it, you know, the difference between not being racist and being anti-racist is really sort of like self and community um and it's sort of okay in myself well I know that well I'm not racist and I'm not doing this but how am I benefiting my community be it my workplace or what have you my team how am I benefiting them um when I'm not actively being anti-racist and I think it you know it requires action on your part um You know, and I think of it as, um, you know, really pushing yourself into changing habits. Um, And I think when you think about it from the perspective of, you know, yes, I have this habit of being, of not being racist, sort of passively not being racist. And now I want to develop the habit and the muscle of actively being anti-racist, um, you know, I think it sort of gives a different connotation to it and it helps you think about it and change your mindset about it a little bit. And what do we do when we create new habits? We focus on that, we do the exercise, you know, we repeat, repeat, repeat until it becomes that new habit. And so I think for me, that sort of the difference is self and community. And challenge yourself, challenging yourself to move from passive, not being a racist, to actively being anti-racist and contributing to your community.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So the difference between self and community, and um, putting your putting your the, the passive um, intentions of not being racist into action by 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 living out those values, I guess, in your everyday life Um,
2: and speaking up and acting out and calling out and having having an impact on the, yeah. Having those tough conversations and challenging yourself to step outside of your comfort zone um, is to me, I think is just to me that goes more. What does it look like? You know, and I think that's what it looks like. It's having those tough conversations, challenging, getting, um, getting used to being uncomfortable and getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, I, I said something to friends this morning, we were talking about going to a new city that um, and I said, you know, I've never been there and I said, well, you know, how do they treat black people in that city? Um, and they were just sort of pause like, well, you know, like, oh, like I hadn't thought about that. And it was my way of letting them know that as a black woman in America, when I have not been to a city, that is one of the first things that come to my mind, you know, and getting them sort of thinking about that as well. And then we had that conversation as they thought through that and thought, hmm, It may be a diverse city, but how are they treating, you know, how are they treating the diverse citizens of their city? And so it was sort of having that initially tough conversation with them and moving them into that uncomfortable position of, oh, I do. You know, let me start thinking about those things. I think that is what it looks like. And it's not just sort of. Calling someone out and slapping them on the wrist and saying, you're bad, you know, it's really educating and raising awareness and being, you know, being a partner um, with, you know, being a partner with others.
0: Yeah, and and I think also putting people into your shoes, right? So, so as you're saying, raising awareness, making people realize that actually when tina is traveling to a state or city that she's not been to before that that is going to be one of the first things she thinks about and and it's similar with me um and this this is sort of outside of the workplace but my my family dynamic my my immediate family is me i'm of mixed heritage biracial um my husband is white my children look white if you put them next to me and and of some undetermined heritage if you put them next to to my husband and when we go so we live in london when we go to cities outside of london that are less diverse that thought also goes through my mind what will people how will people react when they see us what will they do when they look at us because i do notice that my husband claims he doesn't notice it but i do notice it that people stare at us when we walk around so, yeah, absolutely. That is something that goes through my head, but it's, but it doesn't go through his head because that's not his lived experience. And he, he doesn't think about that. My husband. That is. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Interesting. And Interesting. I think,
2: yeah, and I think when you carry that over into the workplace. You know, and you think about how, when you go into imagine going into a new office. Um, and I think this is, you know, for any, I think, diverse talent, diverse attorney, when you're going into that new job, that new workplace, how are they going to react to me? How are they going to treat me? And there are so many that are not thinking that and if we were all thinking that and reacting to that. How that may change that 1st day for that, that diverse attorney.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, let, let's take a different viewpoint on it. So, so Doug, interested in in your thoughts on this, and and going back to you know the question of what what is being anti-racist at work, and how does it how does it differ from not being racist more generally?
3: Yeah, I I mean, I think I'm going to use different words, but I probably describe the same thing. For me, it's. You know, not being racist is, you know, sitting back, you know, and in your own mind saying, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to be racist. But being anti racist is getting out of your chair, getting involved, you know, taking literally that step out of the chair to make connections, to have discussions. In the workplace, it is, um, you know, attracting, retaining, and promoting black talent. And how do you do that after, as Alice or Tina said, you know, after you give them the job, well, we got to, like, embrace them. We got to invest in them. And it does have to be, Tina, as you said, part of your routine, being anti-racist is a routine. It is making a priority of reaching out talking to and probably more importantly listening to our black talent how are you what can i do to help how about this how about that um have you met this person tell me about what's you know how are we doing um all open-ended questions just to try to get some discussion going and boy do i learn a lot when i do that and um You know, people who come to the firm where there aren't many people that look like them, just think about that. And that's what I think about. When you were talking, um, Alice, about, you know, what goes to your mind when when you're traveling, I think about it, what it's like to come to the law firm as a black lawyer, male or female. We don't have a lot of black lawyers at the firm. Stop right there. I mean, think about that. That's how, I, I mean, that goes through my mind when I see our black talent at the firm. How do they feel? And so it, it's, I think it's an attitude being anti-racist. I think it requires action. And then, as Alice, I think you suggested, hopefully we're raising awareness that when I'm out talking about these things or doing things or sending around what I think are great TED Talks, um or whatever you know raising awareness trying to get other people to do the same things i'm doing to me that's being anti-racist it's not just a slap on the hand um and i haven't you know i think it's more likely not tina the slap on the hand in, in the workplace it's it's the covert stuff it's not always you know having to call something out to asking questions what do you mean in the appraisal they didn't fit they didn't have the right fit. What do you mean? What are you, what are you talking about? Tell me more about that. You know, trying to make people explain and maybe feel uncomfortable at what they're saying. Um, so I, to me, that's what anti racism is about.
0: I think, I think that makes sense. I like, I like that. The sort of conceptualizing of it as an attitude, it's an attitude It requires action and it requires action from all of us. Um. And actually just, just on that point, kind of pushing it forward the next level, let's, let's put the words into action. Part of being anti-racist is calling out behavior, right? Is, is picking up on microaggressions, is picking up on the, the unexplained comments in the appraisal process. Let's, let's turn Richard to you then. And are there examples of, of putting the anti-racism in action in the workplace that you can talk to us about? Or maybe, or maybe there are situations that you've been in where you thought you, you hoped that you wished that your colleagues would have acted differently um, to how things actually panned out.
1: Thanks, Alice. Um, when I think about my career, and, and, and it's been a great one. I've been very blessed in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have a lot of sponsors who didn't look like me. But very early on in my career, something that Tina said really made a lot of sense. And that is when I started practicing as a state prosecutor in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, I love Detroit cases. I was pretty good at it. And I got assigned to a particular judge's courtroom who was the toughest judge in the courthouse. And he was, we called old fashioned from the standpoint that if a female lawyer walked into court with a pantsuit suit on, he was gonna send her home. Said you got to wear a dress in my courtroom. So the day I got assigned to his division, he stopped the proceedings and said, let me speak to you in the back. And being a southern, I knew what was gonna happen. We go in the back and says, look, you will be on time. You never ask for a continuance. You'll always be prepared and we're alone just fine. And you know, people like to say, well, why didn't you just go off on the judge and explain that he was out of order? Instead of doing that, I decided that, look, I need him to walk a mile in my shoes. And if you got to know me, and if I did good work, if he had a good heart, then I would get to see that side of him. And so, instead of complaining and running up to the DA and saying we got a problem down here, I bit my tongue. And for the first three months, I was always early to his courtroom, and I would beat him the chambers. I'll be outside of his door waiting on him, uh, always prepared. And that year, we tried seventeen jury trials back to back. I won every trial, and. In doing that and getting to know him, he called me to say, he goes, you know, so you're different. When I grew up, this is how I was raised in my household and I never had a lawyer, special person of color, as a friend, as a colleague, or as a neighbor. Now you're in my courtroom and you're beating every white lawyer, every Jewish lawyer. I mean, you're very good. And so you've caused me to now rethink my views on life. And when I needed to move to Jacksonville, from Jacksonville, Florida to Houston becoming a federal prosecutor, that was the very man that picked up the phone, called the U.S. Attorney and said, yeah, regardless of this kid's skin color, you need to hire him, he's very good. Because so I was in a situation where I had a judge who had never seen or worked with a black lawyer before, had very harsh rules because he had this perception black people were gonna be slow, lazy, and slothful. And I decided instead of just having a huge comfort, let me demonstrate him that I'm a very competent lawyer. In other words, I wanted him to see my abilities, my character, who I was, as opposed to just seeing my skin color. And over time, he came around, and became a very good advocate, said, my perceptions were wrong. And, and, and we would have never had that conversation, but for the fact that I was willing to give him an opportunity to see who I was first, and demonstrate to him that there is more than just one person in this color within dry case. And so i tell you that story to get you to understand that it's been my, Thought process of making sure that people get to know or walk in my shoes first and see who I am before I would judge their content and the character of their hearts. And then you could have very open and uncomfortable conversations because at that point, they didn't view me as being a stranger that they couldn't talk to. They were just, well, this is a black guy that never talks. I could have a discussion about race and about my perception, his perception that we could never have before. And then having those discussions, we we're able to find common ground. Remember that I meant we both knew that, you know, I was extremely aggressive. He was very aggressive and that we wanted to get the right outcome. We wanted to make sure that the bad guy went to jail. And so we found issues that we could bond around. And it was funny when I met my wife and got married, you know, we invited a lot of people from the courthouse. The judge actually came to the wedding. It was very odd. And the people have said, Judge Blanks at your wedding, you know, and he said, I want to meet your mama because she raised you in a way that, you know, I never had that experience growing up. And so for me, we became very good friends uh, and he became a very good sponsor. He went from being someone that had real concerns about a Black person's capabilities and experiences, to so someone who became, let me help him hone his skills, help him go to the next level because he's got some talent, just needs an opportunity. And so I tell you that just to say that when you've been an anti-racist, you have to understand what that person has gone through in life because they would have had a different experience than you. And then understand that if I give this person a fair shot, then I need to be willing to step up when there's opportunity to make sure they get the right opportunities. And throughout my entire career, when I think about it, all of my sponsors, and an advocates and mentor were Anglo-Saxon Protestants or Jews. And I don't say that to be derogatory, I'm saying it because when I was practicing law, there were not a whole lot of black lawyers in Houston, Texas or in McAllen, Texas or in Jacksonville, Florida. And so you very rarely saw someone that looked like you across the table. So you have to learn to make sure that you can build relationships with people so they can understand who you were to get them comfortable to have a very tough discussion, but once you had that discussion, they became to know you. Then it became coming upon them to check their implicit bias and to ensure that when the opportunity came along, you got a chance to compete with the opportunity. Why not step down, Alice? I've said way too much.
0: No, not at all. I was enjoying the story, um, but I think what, what I take away from that is it's really important to build relationships, and and that goes for all employees, right? So it's it, definitely. Um, Building relationships, building networks, that's important across your professional career. But actually, in terms of furthering the 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 desire to be anti-racist, it's also stretching across whatever cultural divides, you know, people perceive and Absolutely. giving everyone a fair shot.
1: Absolutely. I think when it comes to being anti-racist, when you see someone that doesn't look like you, I mean, I just did it yesterday. We had an associate that I haven't, hadn't taken off the monitor. I've been here like four months and he's aging. And so I said, we need to go to lunch. And we go to lunch and I spent less trying to get to know him, how he grew up, his life experiences, and to understand what he would like to do in his career so that I could put myself in a position to be able to relate to him. And we had a great, I mean, he's hilarious. We had a great time talking because, you know, he's telling me about, you know, families from Taiwan, grew up in, you know, Salt Lake City loves to ski. And so it would have been a way for us to bond and we get to understand his culture, his upbringing. And then understand that, you know, he loves to write and he's a fantastic writer. So if we had never had that conversation, I would never have to know what his skills and what he enjoys doing. So I try to say, put myself in a position to you reach out first, because the social's not gonna reach out to you, but if you extend the olive branch and you reach out to them, you'd be amazed if what you can learn about them. And then you'd be in a position to say, oh, if that's what this person likes to do, let me ask if I can find opportunities for him to work on what he wants to do, because I can knock on somebody's door, he may not be comfortable knocking on that partner's door. But I can say, look, I've talked to this kid, he's great, he's got fire in the belly, he loves to write, let's try him out on this particular project. So when you've been anti-racist, then I'm gonna get out of my comfort zone, reach out to someone that doesn't look like me, find out a little bit about them, become comfortable with them, and then try to find a way to help promote their career to get others to take a look at that person, who they may otherwise take a look at it because we all grew up differently and we come from different worlds. And so we can break down those barriers. It makes it a lot easier to be an active anti-racist, but means you can step up at the right time and speak out when someone needs to say something.
0: That's right, that's right. And that's sponsorship and action as well, exactly as you're saying, I'm gonna give this person a shot. I've got to know them. I know what drives them. I think they're gonna be good working on this or this or this. I'm gonna put them forward you're in a position of authority and, and relative power in, in your organization. And so you, you do have the platform to be able to do that. And that's, you know, that absolutely is looking after the next generation of warriors and that's as the, you were saying earlier.
1: Yeah. And that's the idea because I tell people I learned very when Someone sponsored me. The one thing I was going to do, I mean, because I had this management partner that recruited me into the private sector. And he was like, I'm gonna send you to Texas and they're different and they're very outspoken and very direct I'm like look I grew up in Alabama so I'll be just fine and then I meet this corporate guy and he's like I'm only meeting you because Joe called he said you'll be here for the whole week so we got to go watch at least three times while you're here and we got to know each other and and learn that he was a huge hunter and one of the things I did growing up I used to love the turkey hunt. and so we found an issue we could talk about which was shotguns and hunting and that sounds crazy but I had to find some way to bond with this guy Anyway, about two weeks later, one of his biggest clients had a major investigation. So he calls up Joe and goes, Joe, I want to take Richard over to meet the client. And we go down and we meet the board of directors. And you know, I understood that you know this was an external threat to the company. And I walk into this boardroom and nobody looked like me around the board table. And the chairman of the board looks at the partner, and goes, and I'm gonna tell the partner says, I told you to bring your best. And like, oh, here we go. And the partner goes, he is my best. If you don't want to hire him, you want to hire my friend. You know, and I'm sitting here looking, I'm saying, is this the guy that I just spent a week getting to know? But because he got to know and felt comfortable and had talked to someone who'd seen my work, he was then prepared to step out in a very important situation and put forward and say, I vouch for this person's abilities. Which then meant to me, it's like, if we get this job, I've got to hit this out of the park. This guy just put his neck way out on the line with his corporate client. And as a result of that, that confident, of people on that board became my best sponsor because they said look Richard when you walked in the courtroom we're 20 years older than you and you're already 45 so you know we've never worked with the black boys before so we had no idea what to expect because but you didn't accuse us of being racist so first thing we noticed that you didn't start screaming that we we're racist and you sat there and smiled and you know your part went to back for you and so then we we built a relationship because I learned that Yes, you can say someone is racist, and maybe sometimes it's not them being racist, just have not been educated. They hadn't had the exposure and experience. And so I say, let's give them the exposure, the experience, and then just their actions, because then I can say, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so once someone's been educated, then it becomes incumbent upon them to do the right thing, to be willing to take that extra step. And in my career, I've just been blessed that a lot of people along the way were willing to reach out and speak up for me in opportunities to make sure that I got a chance to demonstrate my capabilities. And if other people did that you get to not going to retain your great talent, they will flourish and you build bonds with them in a different way.
0: hmm That yeah, that all makes sense. That does make sense. Tina, should we can we move over to you and just with the with the same the same sort of theme of of calling out behavior at work? And are there any examples that you have of of where you think someone's done that particularly well, or maybe there's a situation where actually you wish that, you know, things had been done a little differently.
2: Yeah, so I think, um, first of all, I just want to say um, thank you, Richard, for sharing your stories. Um, I loved uh, listening to them especially growing up and living in Texas, um, it resonates quite a bit with with me. Um, but and I loved what you said about sometimes it's about being and un, un, uneducated. Um, and I think that's so true, you know, and then once educated it, you know, becomes incumbent upon them to then take action. And I love that. Um, and I think It really, it really made me think about an instance with uh, a former manager um, that I had and, you know, we had this conversation and, and there was another colleague that had maybe made some missteps um, in some comments that they made and, you know, we had the conversation with him about the missteps and then The manager came to me and said, you know, and um, he's straight white male and he said, I, you know, I have a, I recognize I have a very diverse team. Um, and I know that I am learning. About I am learning about each 1 of you and I'm learning about your experiences, you know, and I'm learning about different cultures and. I am going to make missteps because I just don't know and can you partner with me and call me out on it when I do it? Because I don't know, I don't intend to, but I would really appreciate it if you would call me out if and when I do it. Um, And I thought to me as a huge, huge advocate of raising awareness and education, because when you don't know, you can't do, You know, if you don't know what the problem is, how can you fix it? You know, how can you take action when you don't know? Um, And I just thought that in my in my mind and in my heart, that was just the perfect approach to to say, of course, we had that trust, but to say, I don't know. I want to know I am learning and can you help me? Can you call me out and building that, that, that partnership? Um, and so I, I, I thought that was a very, um. You know, a a effective way, um. Of doing that of handling that, um, in, in the workplace.
0: Absolutely, So, so he'd identified there that. He was dealing with a, in his words, a very diverse team that he did not have the same life experiences as the rest of his team and acknowledged that he was going to need some help in addressing, uh, addressing episodes as they came up um, and actually reached out to you because you'd been having the conversation with him to say, can you help? And what, what's great about that is, and I'm sure this has come up a lot for all of us over the last few years, is it's not, it's often you don't get that question can you help me it's more i need to know about this and you look like you might know about it because of the color of your skin because of your hair because of you know some other some other stereotypical characteristic and therefore you are now an expert and you are my personal google so you are going to tell me what i need to know and and that certainly i've struggled with it quite a lot over the last few years i'm sure we all have Um, It puts you in a very difficult situation because suddenly you're being looked at as if you are the world's leading expert on all things to do with um, uh, diversity and inclusion, with ethnic heritage, with differences in the workplace, with um, unconscious bias, with how you fix all of the above, (laughs) which is clearly not straightforward. Otherwise, we would have all done it by now. So I think that, that you know, in your story, Tina, the, the manager who said, I recognize that I don't know everything about all of this. I recognize that I need to be educated, to use, to use Richard's words. Um, and please, can you help me? And please, can we do this together collaboratively? Not you, you tell me what I'm doing wrong and then you tell me how to fix it. I think, I think that is, that's really important.
2: Oh, no, I was just gonna say, I think you call out a very important distinction and I see a difference in my mind, the situation you laid out. It's a very passive placing all of the responsibility on, you know, the diverse associate to, to teach me and take control of this and do this for me as opposed to taking ownership of it, you know, and, and. Actively saying, okay, I am taking ownership and I am working to learn, but I recognize that in this process of me learning, I'm going to make missteps and I want to partner with you. So you can call me out on that and show me areas where I may need to learn more. And so it's sort of sharing the ownership instead of just passing that ownership on. Um, and I think it's important to have. The conversation about that distinction and and what you've brought up, because I think and I've seen and I'm sure, you know, Doug and Richard, you've probably also seen this in your workplace where you see diverse associates are very frustrated. And why is this all on me? And now I have to own all of it, you know, Um, and so I, you know, I think it's important to have that conversation and recognize that difference.
1: I think that's critical uh, because if managers didn't take the approach that Tina's manager took, then it is going to drive frustration and division and wages between the manager or the partner and the associates, and you never build that bridge of trust to get to know one another. And so for me it's the difference between someone who really wants to change, which is the person that Tina described, versus someone who's just checking a box, which is the person that Alice described. Because someone said, Well, write this book on implicit bias. Okay, great. But reading one book or attending one seminar is not going to get to the root cause of the problem because it comes within our heart. And so you have to understand this that I'm willing to be vulnerable and to expose myself and make change. And I have to say, look, if someone's willing to open up and be vulnerable to success then I'm going to give them leeway to make mistakes because I make mistakes and I have my own personal implicit bias. But if we all understand that, then you can grow and go to the next level, and you can have very uncomfortable conversations. I tell folks all the time, look, get used to being in a white world because the legal profession is, especially at the partner level, 2.8 percent are African Americans. You know, and when I started practicing law, it was 2%. So over 30 years, it's only it hadn't even gone to a four percentage point yet. But from a business imperative, if you look at legal departments now, legal departments are becoming, as I call it, they're becoming very brown. If you look at the assistant GCs in the social GCs, there's been a huge increase in the number of African American females, other females of color in those positions. So that tells me in 10 years down the road. That's the next generation of GCs you're dealing with, so you have to understand and have these conversations now to be competitive in the workplace, not only for talent and recruitment, but also to get business. And so, a smart law firm deals with the issues now, so they can build a robust and diverse team to meet the demands and the requirements of any client in this area.
3: Alice, the the point you mentioned, um, and I think Tina confirmed about putting all this on a black associate you know having i'm so aware of that after having talked about it with a black associate you know when you say well how are you doing oh i feel like every time there's something to be done i have to do it you know and i mean think about that as richard just said it's mostly white people in the law firms So, unfortunately, some of the work does need to fall on our black colleagues, but it certainly can't be all of it. And I do hope if people are listening that I'm the only white guy on this podcast. If you're white, that you realize. How much pressure forget about. The pressure they have before they walk into the building. In the building, you know, the amount of pressure they our black colleagues feel um, for helping us get through this to improve this is immense and how do how can they do all that and and do their jobs so we need to help um and it's about i think what richard says putting yourself in in someone else's shoes and i hope i hope we'll do it i mean at the at links we have a, a race action plan and um in when i ask people how we're doing i do try to be sensitive to Um, not making it so, like, so personal, like, it it is on the firm to do to do better. And it's not all on the shoulders. It can't be on the shoulders of our black friends to teach us. To educate us, it's up to us to get the experience. Sometimes it's not even education. It's just experience. Um, right when people just don't have the experience with other people who aren't like them. Don't look like them aren't in the same, you know, schools as them, don't live in the same neighborhoods as them. So there's a, there's a lot of, I think, different levers that create the difference, you know, besides the color. Exactly. Um, right? There's a lot of levels of this.
0: And I think it's it's really important to recognize that. And actually I'd sort of brought that in the point about, you know, overloading your black associates, your black employees, your, you know, any employees of ethnic diversity, ethnic heritage, um, uh, in connection with um, the story that Tina was telling. But actually, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue in its own right. And I think couple that with the general perception that you're, the black lawyers have to work twice as hard, three times as hard, 10 times as hard, as their white peers. And actually, you know, the, the, the story that, that Richard, you were telling about your, your early career with the judge, what, what jumped out at me, first of all, was how hard you had to work to then convince him that actually you were just as good a lawyer as, as the white lawyers he was seeing in his courtroom. And once he got over that hurdle of realizing that you weren't slow, that you weren't intellectually inferior that you weren't going to miss deadlines and you weren't going to be late to his courtroom once he realized that then he could see beyond the probably the, the background his own background and what society had taught him when he was younger but the reason he got beyond that was because you worked harder than everyone you turned up to the courtroom before he turned up to the courtroom and i think so you've got you've got that In any event, as a, as a black lawyer in this environment, in a, in a white dominated environment, you have that sense. Anyway, I have to work harder than my white peers to then also add to that. And now I have to tell everyone what it means to be black (laughs) and how I want to be treated and how I'm no different actually to anyone else in terms of my, my academic ability and my technical ability. Um that's a lot to to put on someone's shoulders, particularly when they are more junior uh, in the workplace. And that certainly needs to be recognized. And I think that just ties in again to the whole concept of of being anti-racist, that in your work allocation practices, in your appraisal um, meetings, that there's a real recognition of that. And, And it's hard to move away from unconscious bias, let alone racism. We put racism, you know, out of the picture for the minute. We all have unconscious biases. We all do. And we know that from the training we've all done. And it sort of, it sort of leads on to the next point that I wanted to, to raise um, as part of this discussion, which is it's recognizing, uh, it's recognizing potentially racist tendencies in yourself. There's a great book by uh, Ijoma Aluo which I'm sure you've all seen, if not read, called um, So You Want to Talk About Race. And I only read it recently, and it's, she's a Nigerian-American author, has uh, really, really sort of, it's not even insightful, it's so, it's so straightforward what she writes, but it's really, it does resonate when you read it, um, depending on your background and your experiences. And there's, there's something she said, which is, Anti-racism is the commitment to fight racism, wherever you find it, including in yourself. And it's that bit, including in yourself, that makes you go, oh, no, I don't have those tendencies. No, I'm not racist. Um, and it's, it's the, the the making me uncomfortable, comfortable, recognizing these types of tendencies in yourself. And And I often think, for me, right, there's, I think we all have a certain amount of privilege in our lives and it, and it will be on a, you know, it's all relative. It's all on a different scale. So people talk a lot about white privilege, but there's other forms of privilege. There's light skin privilege. I definitely benefit from that. Um, and I'm really aware of that as well. I'm really open to it. I'm really aware of it. But there's there's educational privilege, you know, did you have access to education that others haven't? There's your lifestyle, your upbringing, that type of privilege or your parents. Um, uh, beneficiaries of higher education, are they in in white collar professions that they can, you know, they can educate you in? Or did you have a completely different background? Are you first generation to finish high school, let alone go to university? So this, It's all sort of wrapped into one. I think you, you need to sort of look inwards and realize the the relative privilege that you have had in your own life and then apply that lens to daily interactions with others. But I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on that. And and maybe with that, um, we can start with Doug.
3: No, I agree. That's really you got a lot in there, Alice. I agree. Um but in when you talked about looking inside, you know, that we all have unconscious biases. And it's so true and probably hurts to admit. Uh and it makes me think about Um, I was in before COVID, we used to travel a little bit around the world and I was in South Africa. And I remember walking between the hotel and the office had to go through like a mall and, um, everybody in the mall was black. Everybody that worked there was black. Um, I think I may have been the only customer. It was like early in the morning or something. And I just, I, I remember feeling it. I'm the only white person here. And um I felt like they were looking at everyone was looking at me. Like, what are you doing here? You're the only white guy. And I'm sure they were not. I'm sure they were just looking at me hoping I'd come into the store or you know. But I remember that that made me understand, I think, a little bit about how it feels to be, you know, look different. Um, whether it's black, you know, Dark skin, black, light skin, black, whatever, every, everybody's got something. I mean, I certainly feel that way as a a Jew on certain holidays. If I'm going to temple and I come at a temple and everybody's not Jewish is going to school or going to work as I definitely feel it then. So. I think we all have these experiences. Unconscious biases, I hope we would all take a time out and actually reflect on them and learn from them. Um, because I think that's the, and, and talking about it, like, this is the only way, then we bring it into our workplace. I hope. And that's where anti racism does have. To me, the most useful part is getting, as you said, taking action. I think about forging. I'm leaning, I'm leaning out of my chair as I say it, because I know you can't see it on the podcast, but forging relationships, you know, I think we've all used kind of active verbs. When we talk about creating opportunities, forging relationships, creating routines, get out of your chair and help bring people in to part of the community. And that's the, the one point I want to make, and I'll shut up, is what do I want people to do? That's what I want them to do. I want them, like I know Richard and I do, to get out of their seats and make it a routine to check on our, non-white colleagues okay you can check on the white colleagues too i want everyone to feel the love but when you're at a place where not everybody looks like you we got to make an effort to make them feel part of the place and to train them promote them then we're going to solve the retention issue that we did start off talking about it's a big big problem so back to you
0: yeah i i agree with that and I, i think just just rounding it off um what we, we, You know, obviously, this, this, the focus of this podcast is about the workplace. The workplace is deeply influenced by society at large. So, so we have to take this away to our families, our friends, the way we live our lives. And slowly, 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 you hope as the generations pass through, attitudes do start to shift and start to change. So in, in terms of impacts on your families and, and your children or children in your lives, but what is, what is the one thing that you are trying to impart about being anti-racist? And maybe Tina, we can start with you on that.
2: Sure, thanks, Alice. So um, I have this conversation with my kids uh, regularly and frequently. Um, my son is 19 and my daughter is 16 and we have really focused on raising them in almost a lot of what we do is preparing them for their future, and so we connect a lot of what they do in high school with what you would do in the workplace. Um, And I've looked, as I've looked around and I see I don't want my children to behave this way when they get into the workplace, so what can I do now? Um, And the most recent thing, we challenge them, I will say, we challenge them to understand their own um, unconscious biases and and if they make statements and we challenge them and and I have told my son, that's a racist statement. That's racist and, you know, why would you say that? And we, we have that conversation and we challenge them. Um, and most recently what we've talked about what I talked about with my daughter actually earlier this week was patience and understanding. Um, and I think it's a theme that we've hit on quite a bit in this conversation. And what I explained to her is understand that. Majority of the people that you come in contact with because she goes to a uh, it's a diverse school, but a predominantly white school still um, that they're not seeing the world and experiencing the world through the lens that you are as a black female in America. And so you have to first have that understanding, meet them where they are and have patience as you educate and raise awareness about your experience and what you're going through. Um, And so that's what we are really sort of focusing in on with them um, in hopes that they will carry that through not only, you know, um, their educational careers, but carry that into their professional careers um carry that and that understanding um and employ that patience
0: absolutely yeah, patience and understanding i think it's a it's a really strong message um doug why don't we why don't we move to you on that one
3: yeah i um honestly, I asked them if they have any black friends, who are they? what are you doing with them? Invite them over, Um, and really ask those questions. to Say, "What do you think it feels like to be, you know, a black kid in your class?" And um, since I've been doing that for a while, they're used to it. Uh, My two daughters were 21 and 16, but boy, can you imagine if everybody did something like that? It doesn't have to be the black kid; it could be whatever the the minority in the class. You know, what have you done to, to reach out and connect with that person to make them feel like they belong? Wow.
0: And and how did they react to that?
3: So at the, at the beginning of when I did this, they kind of looked at me. Um, but I, you know, over the years, I I see it having an impact, and they actually have answers. They didn't have answers initially. But, yeah, and I know they're friends and I know what they're doing and they know that I'm paying attention to it because it's important to me. I think it's become important to them.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me to hear that because I have similar conversations with my girls, um, two girls, but they're much, much younger. So nine and six. And even though they have a mother who looks like me, they, they still I noticed. A few years ago now, that when we were reading stories, when we were playing with the dolls and things, they would naturally gravitate towards the white blonde characters in the stories. And when I used to give them the brown skin Barbies, the multiracial Barbies, they were not interested. They wanted the white Barbies, the blonde Barbies. Um, and so that's when I started talking to them about uh, cultural identity, I guess, race—not um, really using those words, but but you know, the the different the different shades of black and white that, that you would see in society. And what really, really struck me at that point was that even though they had a mother who looks like me, they were still, they were still sort of, um, they were still affected by by society's views and that they still thought that white and blonde was, was best. And that has changed, that has definitely changed over the years, but I think partly because we've been having these conversations probably in a, in a gentler way so that they can understand um the other day that their school had a heritage day and they were asked to to come in wearing clothes from, you know, representing their their heritage and i i didn't love it i have to say because my 9-year-old turned to me and said, "Do i have to dress like a slave?" because that is that's what she's heard about the black side of her family. And and it really struck me then that we, we need to kind of impress upon our, our children that it's not taboo to talk about heritage. It's, it's you know, something that needs to be celebrated and, and we should be interested in, in our friends' cultural, um, you know, backgrounds and, and their, their maybe their religious practices or their, their cultural practices. But by the same token, we can't, you can't just assume that everyone has one heritage, because that isn't the case. And and I think certainly, you know, if you if you are of an African American background, you can't point to one African country to say that is where you come from, that is where your ancestors come from. So it's it's a it's a difficult one. It's a difficult balance to tread. But I I do think that encouraging conversations about ethnic diversity and ethnic heritage is is part of the way forward, so that it isn't taboo, so that you don't say oh they're black, like that, you know. Um, that we're just much more open with each other about these things. Yes. But maybe maybe Richard, we could we could finish off with you and then we'll, I think we'll have to draw our conversation to a close, which is a shame because I'm really enjoying it.
1: Well, for my daughter who's 18, she would tell you that she lives in three different worlds because she goes to the British International School of Washington which is where a lot of the diplomat kids go. So her friends are from every country you could imagine. Because, you know, when you talk about privilege, my daughter has grown up dramatically different, differently than I grew up, because when I grew up, it was just a single mom, father died when we were young. We all had to work. And so, you know, our way out was to go to school, get good grades, you know, go to church, work hard. And hopefully you get the opportunities and you do well. Well, for my daughter, because her mother's adopted, I'm a lawyer. We live in a very nice neighborhood. Our neighborhood is um, racially diverse. So she says, well, I live in a diverse neighborhood. I go to a school. That's international. And then I go to a black church. So she's like, I'm living in like, three different worlds. And what we wanted her to understand is that. The world is different wherever you live. You have to learn how to interact and understand people from around the globe and you have to be patient. I mean when TikTok about being patient, and understanding my daughter has absolutely no patience. There are times when I've been stopped for driving and she just got what to stop my dad. I'm telling her, please be quiet because I want to get out of this and not cause something. And she's like, why should we have to be quiet and, and trying to explain to her that look like, race still matters in America and you have to be careful how you interact or engage with people at certain times because things can get out of hand, and I want to make sure that we both get home in one piece, so my biggest risk is like when you start driving, I need you to just bite your tongue and listen and call someone, but don't speak loud so it's it's really tough because she's like I grew up differently that, but now when you tell me when I get thought by the police behave this way when I go to school behave that way, I'm like, yes because we have to be able to move through different worlds. To be successful, and so in you know, a lot of her friends, it was funny. She's got this childhood friend from daycare, and now they go to different high schools. Ooh, swipe, but they bonded as kids from preschool, and so one Christmas, you know, the um, the white girl's grandmother came in, and was like. Why do you like all these black dolls in, the, in the room and her mother had to explain, well, her best friend just happened to be African American. And so when the grandmother finally met my daughter, then she started sending Christmas presents to both. And it was just because they had grew up together as friends. They never viewed themselves as black said, just, That's just my friends. So although they're not seniors in high school and go to different schools, they still talk every day. What The parents got to do is make sure that I wanted their child to feel comfortable come over to our house. And I wanted my daughter to feel comfortable over their house because we knew that. They I mean racism is something that is taught. It's not something that you're born with. And when you understand that you can unteach it or cause people to have a different heart, but you can't ignore it. And so that's why being an anti racist is so critically important in the workplace. And I'll stop with that. I've said way too much, so I apologize to bad thing you all said for being so long winded.
0: I think that's a brilliant way to end. You know, we recognize race is a social construct but it's it's there it's there to stay and you can't unteach it you need to try and 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 acknowledge it and educate people about what that means so i think all that's left to say really is thank you thank you so much to everyone tina richard and doug thank you for your time thank you for being part of this conversation and to our listeners thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast we hope that you can carry on the conversation in your own workplaces and, and possibly put some of what you've heard in practice. Please do share the recording with your colleagues and your networks and your friends because change will only start happening as we continue talking. And that is the whole purpose of Diversity Talks. So stay tuned for our third and final episode, which will be aired soon. Until then, thank you and goodbye.